Chapter Four of Dodo: A Detail of the Day by E. F. Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Lord and Lady Chesterford were expected home on the sixth of December. The marriage took place late in August, and they had gone off on the yacht directly afterwards in order to spend a few warm months in the Mediterranean. Dodo had written home occasionally to Mrs. Vane, and now and then to Jack. To Jack her letters had never been more than a word or two, simply saying that they were enjoying themselves enormously, and that Jack had been hopelessly wrong. Mrs. Vane also had much reason to be satisfied. She had spent her autumn in a variety of fashionable watering-places, where her dresses had always been the awe and wonder of the town. She had met many acquaintances, to whom she had poured out her rapture over Dodo's marriage, had declared that Chesterford was most charming, and that he and Dodo were quite another Adam and Eve in paradise, and that she was really quite jealous of Dodo. When they left England, they had intended to spend the winter abroad and not come back till February, but early in December a telegram had arrived at Winston, Lord Chesterford's country house, saying that they would be back in ten days. About the same time Jack received a letter, saying that their change of plans was solely owing to the fact that Dodo was rather tired of the sea, and the weather was bad, and that she had never been so happy in her life. Dodo's eagerness to assure Jack of this struck him as being in rather bad taste. She ought to have entirely ignored his warnings. The happiness of a newly married woman ought to be so absorbing as to make her be unaware of the existence of other people and this consciousness in Dodo of her triumphant superiority of knowledge led him to suppose he was right rather than wrong. He was unfeignedly sorry not to be sure that she had been right. When he told Dodo that he wished to be jealous of Chesterford, he was quite sincere. Since he could not have Dodo himself, at any rate let her make someone happy. Dodo also informed him that they were going to have a house-party that Christmas and that he must come and she had asked Mrs. Vivian to show that she wasn't afraid of her any longer, and that Maud was coming, and she wished Jack would marry her. Then followed a dozen other names belonging to Dodo's private and particular set, who had all been rather disgusted at her marrying what they chose to call a Philistine. It had been quite hoped that she would marry Jack. Jack was not a Philistine at all, though the fact of his having proposed to her remained a secret. Maud, on the other hand, was a Philistine, and it was one of Dodo's merits that she did not drop those who originally had claims on her when she became the fashion. She was constantly trying to bring Maud into notice, but Maud resisted the most well-meant shoves. She had none of Dodo's vivacity and talents. In fact, her talents lay chiefly in the direction of arranging the places at a dinner party and in doing a great deal of unnecessary worsted work. What happened to her worsted work nobody ever knew. It was chiefly remarkable for the predominance of its irregularities, and a suggestion of damaged goods about it, in consequence of much handling. To Dodo it seemed an incredible stupidity that anyone should do worsted work, or, if they did do it, not do it well. She used to tell Maud that it was done much more cheaply in shops, and much better. Then Maud would drop it for a time and take to playing the piano, but that was even more oppressively stupid to Dodo's mind than the worsted work. Maud had a perfect genius for not letting her right hand know what her left hand was doing, 
a principle which was abhorrent to Dodo in every application. The consequence of all this was that Dodo was apt to regard her sister as a failure, though she still, as in the present instance, liked giving Maud what she considered a helping hand. It must be confessed that Dodo's efforts were not altogether unselfish. She liked her environment to be as great a success as herself, as it thus added to her own completeness, just as a picture looks better in a good frame than in a shabby one. Maud, however, had no desire to be a success. She was perfectly happy to sit in the background and do the worst work. She longed to be let alone. At times she would make her escape to the ironworks and try to cultivate the domestic virtues in attending to her father. She thought with a kind of envy of the daughters of country clergymen, whose mediocre piano-playing was invaluable to penny readings and village concerts, and for whose worst work there was a constant demand in view of old women and almshouses. She had hoped that Dodo's slumming experiences would bring her into connection with this side of life, and had dispensed tea and buns with a kind of rapture on the occasion of Dodo's tea-party. But her sister had dropped her slums, as we have seen at this point, and Maud was too shy and uninitiative to take them up alone. She had an excellent heart, but excellent hearts were out of place in Mrs. Vane's establishment. Dodo had confessed her inability to deal with them. Dodo's general invitation to Jack was speedily followed by a special one from Winston, naming the first week in January as the time of the party. Jack was met on his arrival by Chesterford, and as they drove back, the latter gave him particulars about the party in the house. "'They are chiefly Dodo's friends,' he said. "'Do you know, Jack, except for you, I think I'm rather afraid of Dodo's friends. They are so dreadfully clever, you know. Of course, they're all very charming, but they talk about character. Now, I don't care to talk about character. I know a good man when I see him, and that's all that matters, as far as I can judge. Dodo was saying last night that her potentiality for good was really much stronger than her potentiality for evil, and that her potentiality for evil was only skin deep, and they all laughed and said they didn't believe it. And Dodo said, Ask Chesterford if it isn't, and God only knows what I said. Jack laughed. Poor old fellow, he said. You and I will go to the smoking room and talk about nothing at all subtle. I don't like subtleties either. Ah, but they expect great things of you, said Chesterford ruefully. Dodo was saying you were an apostle. Are you an apostle, Jack? Oh, that's only a nickname of Dodo's, he said, smiling. But who are these dreadfully clever people? Oh, there's Ledger's. You know him, I suppose, and a Miss Edith Staines, and a girl whom I don't know called Miss Grantham, whom Ledger said, when she was out of the room last night, that he had discovered. What he meant, heaven knows. Then there's Maud, who is a nice girl. She went round to the keepers with me this afternoon and played with the baby. Then there's Bertie Arbuthnot, and I think that's all. Jack laughed. I don't think we need mind them, he said. We'll form a square to resist cavalry. That is the best of the lot, said Chesterford. And they laughed at him rather, I think. But he's quite unconscious of it. 
They drove on in silence a little way. Then Chesterford said, Jack, Dodo makes me the happiest of men. I'm afraid sometimes that she's too clever and wishes I was more so, but it makes no difference. Last night, as I was in the smoking room, she sent to say she wanted to see me, and I went up. She said that she wanted to talk to me, now she had got rid of all those tiresome people, and said so many charming things that I got quite conceited and had to stop her. I often wonder, Jack, what I have done to deserve her. And she went on talking about our yachting, and those months in London when we were first engaged, and she told me to go on smoking, and she would have a cigarette too. And we sat on talking till I saw she was tired, and then I went away, though she would hardly let me. This communication had only the effect of making Jack rather uncomfortable. Knowing what he did, he knew that this was not at all genuine on Dodo's part. It was obviously an effort to keep it up, to use a vulgar term. And since it was not all genuine, the doubt occurred as to whether any of it was. Jack had a profound belief in Dodo's dramatic talents. That the need for keeping it up had appeared already was an alarming symptom, but the real tragedy would begin on that day when Dodo first failed to do so. And from that moment Jack regarded his prophecy as certain to be fulfilled. The overture had begun, and in course of time the curtain would rise on a grim performance. They drove up to the door and entered the large oak-panelled hall, hung all round with portraits of the family. The night was cold, and there was a fire sparkling in the wide open grate. As they entered, an old collie, who was enjoying the fruits of a well-spent life on the hearthrug, stretched his great tawny limbs and shoved a welcoming nose into Chesterford's hand. This produced heartburnings of the keenest order in the mind of a small fox-terrier pup, who consisted mainly of head and legs, which latter he evidently considered at present more as a preventive towards walking than an aid. Being unable to reach his hand, the puppy contented himself with sprawling over his boots and making vague snaps at the collie. It was characteristic of Chesterford that all animals liked him. He had a tender regard for the feelings of anything that was dependent on him. Dodo thought this almost inexplicable. She disliked to see animals in pain, because they usually howled, but the dumb anguish of a dog who considers himself neglected conveyed nothing to her. From within a door to the right came sounds of talking and laughter. There was something pathetic in the sight of this beautiful home and its owner standing with his back to the fire as Jack divested himself of his coat. Chesterford was so completely happy, so terribly unconscious of what Jack felt sure was going on. He looked the model of the typical English gentleman, with his tall stature and well-bred face. Jack remembered passing on the road a labourer who was turning into his cottage. The firelight had thrown a bright ray across the snow-covered road, and inside he had caught a momentary glimpse of the wife with a baby in her arms, and a couple of girls laying the tablecloth. He remembered afresh Dodo's remark about waiting until the chimney smoked, and devoutly hoped that the chimney of this well-appointed house was in good order. Chesterford led the way to the drawing-room door, and pushed it open for Jack to enter. Dodo was sitting at the tea-table, talking to some half-dozen people who were grouped around her. 
As Jack entered, she rose and came towards him with a smile of welcome. "'Ah, Jack,' she said, "'this is delightful. I'm tremendously glad to see you. Let's see, whom do you know? May I introduce you to Miss Grantham? Mr. Broxton. I think you know everybody else. Chesterford, come here and sit by me at once. You've been an age away. I expect you've been getting into mischief.' She wheeled a chair up for him and planted him down in it. He looked radiantly happy. "'Now, Jack,' she went on, "'tell us what you've been doing all these months. It's years since we saw you. I think you look all right. No signs of breaking down yet. I hoped you would have gone into a rapid consumption because I was married, but it doesn't seem to have made any difference to anybody except Chesterford and me. Jack, don't you think I shall make an excellent matron? I shall get Maud to teach me some of her crochet stitches.' Have you ever been here before? Chesterford, you shut it up, didn't you, for several years, until you thought of bringing me here? Sugar, Jack? Two lumps? Chesterford, you mustn't eat sugar. You're getting quite fat already. You must obey me, you know. You promised to love, honour, and obey. Oh, no, I did that. However, sugar is bad for you. Dodo keeps a tight hand on me, you see, said Chesterford from the depths of his chair. Dodo... Give me the sugar, or we shall quarrel. Dodo laughed charmingly. He would quarrel with his own wife for a lump of sugar, said Dodo dramatically. But she won't quarrel with him. Take it, then. She glanced at Jack for a moment as she said this, but Jack was talking to Miss Grantham, and either did not see or did not seem to. Jack had a pleasant impression of light hair, dark grey eyes, and a very fair complexion, but somehow it produced no more effect on him than do those classical profiles which are commoner on the lids of chocolate boxes than elsewhere. Her discoverer was sitting in a chair next her, talking to her with something of the air of a showman exhibiting the tricks of his performing bear. His manner seemed to say, See with an intelligent animal. The full sublimity of Lord Ledger's remark had not struck him till that moment. Miss Grantham was delivering herself of a variety of opinions in a high, penetrating voice. "'Oh, did you never hear him sing last year?' she was saying to Lord Ledgers. "'Mr. Broxton, you must have heard him. He has the most lovely voice. He simply sings into your inside. You feel as if someone had got hold of your heart and was stroking it. Don't you know how some sounds produce that effect? I went with Dodo once.' She simply wept floods, but I was too far gone for that. He had put a little stopper on my tear bottle, and though I was dying to cry, I couldn't. "'I always wonder how sorry we are when we cry,' said Lord Ledgers in a smooth, low voice. "'It always strikes me that people who don't cry probably feel most.' "'Oh, you're a horrid, unfeeling monster,' remarked Miss Grantham. That's what comes of being a man. Just because you're not in the habit of crying yourself, you think that you have all the emotions, but stoically repress them. Now, I cultivate emotions. I would walk ten miles any day in order to have an emotion. Wouldn't you, Mr. Broxton? It obviously depends on what sort of emotion I should find when I walked there, said Jack. There are some emotions that I would walk further to avoid. "'Oh, of course, the common emotions, the litany things, as Dodo calls them,' said Miss Grantham, dismissing them lightly with a wave of her hand. "'But what I like 
is a nice little sad emotion that makes you feel so melancholy that you don't know what to do with yourself. I don't mean deaths and that sort of thing, but seeing someone you love being dreadfully unhappy and extremely prosperous at the same time. But it's rather expensive for the people you love, said Jack. Oh, we must all make sacrifices, said Miss Grantham. It's quite worth while if you gratify your friends. I would not mind being actually unhappy if I could dissect my own emotions and have them photographed and sent round to my friends. What a charming album we might all make, said Lord Ledgers. Page one, Miss Grantham's heart in the acute stage. Page two, mortification setting in. Page three, the lacrimatory gland permanently closed by a tenor voice. Poor old Chesterford, thought Jack. This is rather hard on him. But Chesterford was not to be pitied just now, for Dodo was devoting her exclusive conversation to him in defiance of her duties as hostess. She was recounting to him how she had spent every moment of his absence at the station. Certainly she was keeping it up magnificently at present. "'And Mrs. Vivian comes tomorrow,' she was saying. "'You like her, don't you, Chesterford? You must be awfully good to her and take her to see all the drunken idlers in the village. That would be dear of you. It's just what she likes. She has sort of passion for drunken cabmen who stamp on their wives. If you stamped on me a little every evening, she would cultivate you to any extent.' Shall I lie down on the floor for you to begin? Chesterford leaned back in his chair in a kind of ecstasy. Ah, Dodo, he said, you're wonderfully good to me. But I must go and write two notes before dinner, and you must amuse your guests. I'm very glad Jack has come. He's a very good chap. But don't make him an apostle. Dodo laughed. I shall make a little golden hoop for him, like the apostles in the Arundels, and another for you, and when nobody else is there, you can take them off and play hoops with them. I expect the apostles did that when they went for a walk. You couldn't wear it round your hat, could you? Miss Grantham instantly annexed Dodo. Dodo, she said, come and take my part. These gentlemen say you shouldn't cultivate emotions. No, not that quite, corrected Jack. I said it was expensive for your friends if they had to make themselves miserable in order to afford food for your emotions. Now, isn't that selfish? said Miss Grantham, with the air of a martyr at the stake. Here am I, ready to be drawn and quartered for anyone's amusement, and you tell me you're sorry for your part, but that it costs too much. Maud, come off that sofa and take up the daggers for a too unselfish woman. I expect I don't know much about these things, said Maud. No, Maud would not go further than wrapping herself in a winding sheet of blue worsted, remarked Dodo incisively. Maud flushed a little. Oh, Dodo, she exclaimed deprecatingly. It's no use hitting Maud, said Dodo pensively. You might as well hit a feather bed. Now if you hit Jack, he'll hit back. Well, I'd prefer you hit me, said Jack, than that you should hit anyone who can't hit back. Can't you see that I've determined not to hit feather beds, said Dodo in a low tone. Really, Jack, you do me an injustice. Jack looked up at her quickly. Do you say that already? he asked. Oh, if you are going to whisper, 
"'I shall whisper too,' remarked Miss Grantham calmly. "'Lord Ledgers, I want to tell you a secret.' "'I was only telling Jack he was stupid,' said Dodo. "'I thought I would spare him before you all, but I see I have to explain. "'Have you seen Bertie yet, Jack? He's in the smoking-room, I think. "'Edith Staines is probably there, too. "'She always smokes after tea, and Chesterford doesn't like it in the drawing-room. "'You know her, don't you? "'She's writing a symphony or something, and she's no use except at mealtimes. "'I expect she'll play it us afterwards. "'We must make Bertie sing, too. "'There's the dressing-bell. "'I'm going to be gorgeous tonight in honour of you, Jack.' Jack found himself making a quantity of reflections when he retired to his room that night. He became aware that he had enjoyed himself more that evening than he had done for a very long time. He questioned himself as to when he had enjoyed himself so much, and he was distinctly perturbed to find that the answer was when he had last spent an evening with Dodo. He had formed an excellent habit of being exactly honest with himself, and he concluded that Dodo's presence had been the cause of it. It was a very unpleasant blow to him. He had accepted her refusal with an honest determination to get over it. He had not moped, nor pined, nor striven, nor cried. He had no intentions of dying of a broken heart. But the stubborn fact remained that Dodo exercised an unpleasantly strong influence over him. He could have repeated without effort all she had said that night. She had not said anything particularly remarkable, but somehow he felt that the most striking utterances of other men and women would not have produced any such effect on him. It really was very inconvenient. Dodo had married a man who adored her, for whom she did not care two pins' heads, and this man was one of his oldest friends. Decidedly, there was something left-handed about this particular disposition of destiny. And the worst of it was that Chesterford was being hopelessly duped. About that he felt no doubt. Dodo's acting was so remarkably lifelike that he mistook it at present for reality. But the play must end some time, and the sequel was too dark and involved to be lightly followed out. He could not conceive why this elaborate drama on Dodo's part did not disgust him more. He wished he had been deceived by it himself, but having been behind the scenes, he had seen Dodo, as it were, in the green room, putting on the rouge and powder. But failing that, he wished that a wholesome impulse of disgust and contempt had superseded his previous feelings with regard to her. But he believed with her that under these circumstances it was the best thing to do. The marriage was a grand mistake, true, but given that, was not this simply so many weeks of unhappiness saved? Then he had an immense pity for Dodo's original mistake. She had told him once that she was no more responsible for her philosophy than for the fact that she happened to be five foot eight in height, and had black eyes and black hair. "'It was nature's doing,' she had said. "'Go and crawl with her, but don't blame me. If I had made myself, I should have given myself a high ideal. I should have had something to live up to. Now I have no ideal. The whole system of things seems to me such an immense puzzle that I have given up trying to find a solution. I know what I like and what I dislike.' Can you blame me for choosing the one and avoiding the other? I like wealth and success and society and admiration. In a degree, I have secured them, and the more I secure them, the more reason I have to be satisfied. To do otherwise would be like putting on boots that were too large for me. They are excellent for other people, but not for me. I cannot accept ideals that I don't feel. 
I could understand them, and I can sympathize with them, and I can and do wish they were mine, but as nature has denied me them, I must make the best of what I have. Jack felt hopeless against this kind of reasoning, and angry with himself for letting this woman have such dominion over him. In a measure he felt himself capable of views bounded by a horizon not so selfishly fatalistic, and the idea of the smoking chimney in the cottage did not seem to matter, provided that Dodo was sitting on the other side of the hearthrug. He would willingly have sacrificed anything else to allow himself to give full reins to his thought on this point. But the grand barrier which stood between him and Dodo was not so much her refusal of him, but the existence of her husband. At this, Jack pulled himself up sharp. There are certain feelings of loyalty that still rank above all other emotions. Miss Grantham would certainly have classed such among the litany things. There was nothing heroic about it. It simply consisted in a sturdy refusal to transgress, even in vaguest thought, a code which deals with the most ordinary and commonplace virtues and vices. There is nothing heroic in a street boy passing by the baker's cart without a grab at the loaves, and it sounds almost puritanical to forbid him to cast a glance at them, or inhale a sniff of their warm fragrance. Certainly, this side of morality is remarkably dull, thought Jack. And the worst of it is that it is not only dull, but difficult. With practice, most of us could become a simian stylites, provided we are gifted with a steady head and a constitution that defies showers. It is these commonplace acts of loyalty, the ordinary and rational demands of friendship and society, that are so dreadfully taxing to most of us who have the misfortune not to be born saints. Then Jack began to feel ill-used. Why the deuce should Chesterford be born a marquis and not I? What has he done to have a title and fortune and dodo that I have been given the chance to do? It struck him that his reflections were deplorably commonplace, and that his position ought to be made much more of. He wondered whether this sort of situation was always so flat. In novels there is always a touch of the heroic in the faithful friend who is loyal to his cousin and steadily avoids his cousin's wife. But here he is, in identically the same situation, feeling not at all heroic, but only discontented and quarrelsome with his ill-managed world. Decidedly, he would go to bed. Owing to a certain habit that he had formed early in life, he slept soundly, and morning found him not only alive, but remarkably well and hearty, and with a certain eagerness to follow up what he had thought out on the previous night. He was in an excellently managed household, which imposed no rules on its inhabitants except that they should do what they felt most inclined to do. He was in congenial company, and his digestion was good. It is distressing how important those material matters are to us. The deeper emotions do but form a kind of background to our coarser needs. We come down in the morning feeling rather miserable, but we eat an excellent breakfast, and in spite of ourselves we are obliged to confess that we feel distinctly better. As Jack crossed the hall, he met a footman carrying a breakfast tray into the drawing-room. The door was half open, and there came from within the sounds of vigorous piano-playing, and now and then a bar or two of music sung in a rich, alto voice. These tokens seemed to indicate that Miss Edith Staines was taking her breakfast at the piano. 
Jack found himself smiling at the thought. It was a great treat to find anyone so uniformly in character as Miss Staines evidently was. He turned into the dining-room, where he found Miss Grantham sitting at the table alone. Dodo was lolling in a great chair by the fire, and there were signs that Lord Chesterford had already breakfasted. Dodo was nursing a little Persian kitten with immense tenderness. Apparently she had been disagreeing with Miss Grantham on some point, and had made the kitten into a sort of arbitrator. "'Oh, you dear kitten,' she was saying, "'you must agree with me if you think it over. Now, supposing you were very fond of a tomcat that had only the woodshed to lie in, and another very presentable tom belonging to the queen came. Ah, Jack, here you are. Chesterford's breakfasted, and there's going to be a shoot today over the home covers. Edith is composing and breakfasting. She says she has an idea. So Granty and I are going to bring you lunch to the keeper's cottage at half-past one. And Bertie? asked Jack. Oh, you must get Edith to tell you what Bertie's going to do. Perhaps she'll want him to turn over the pages for her, or give her spoonfuls of egg and bacon, while she does her music. He's in the drawing-room now. Edith's appropriated him. She usually does appropriate somebody. We told Chesterford to get Bertie to come if possible, but Edith's leave is necessary. Maud is going to meet Mrs. Vivian, who comes this afternoon, and, as she has some shopping to do, she will lunch in Harchester and drive out afterwards. Ledgers has had a telegram and has made a blasphemous departure for town. He comes back this evening. "'Well, Dodo,' remarked Miss Grantham, "'now let's go on with what we were discussing. Mr. Broxton will make a much better umpire than the kitten.' "'Oh, shut up, Granty,' said Dodo, with fine candour. "'Jack agrees with neither of us.' "'Tell me what it is,' said Jack, "'and then I'll promise to agree with somebody.' "'I don't care about your agreeing with me,' said Miss Grantham. "'I know I'm right, so it doesn't signify what anybody else thinks.' Miss Grantham, it may be noticed, showed some signs of being ruffled. "'Oh, now, Granty's angry,' said Dodo. "'Granty, do be amiable. Call her Granty, Jack,' she added with feeling. "'Dodo, darling,' said Miss Grantham, "'you're really foolish now and then. I'm perfectly amiable. But, you know, if you don't care for a man at all, and he does care for you a great deal, it's sure to be a failure. I can't think of any instance just now, but I know I'm right. Dodo looked up and caught Jack's eye for a moment. Then she turned to Miss Grantham. Dear Granty, please shut up. It's no use trying to convince me. I know a case in point just the other way, but I'm not at liberty to mention it. Am I, Jack? If you mean the same as the case I'm thinking of... "'Certainly not,' said Jack. "'Well, I'm sure this is very pleasant for me,' said Miss Grantham, in high, cool tones. At this moment a shrill voice called Dodo from the drawing-room. "'Dodo! Dodo!' it cried. "'The man brought me two tepid poached eggs. Do send me something else. Is there such a thing as a grilled bone?' These remarks were speedily followed up by the appearance of Miss Staines at the dining-room door. In one hand she held the despised eggs, in the other a choir of music paper. Behind her followed a footman with her breakfast tray, in excusable ignorance as to what was required of him. "'Dear Dodo,' she went on, "'you know when I'm composing a symphony I want something more exciting than two poached eggs. Mr. Broxton, I know, will take my side. You couldn't eat poached eggs at a ball, could you?' They might do very well for a funeral march or a nocturne, but they won't do for a symphony. 
especially for the scherzo. A brandy and soda and a grilled bone is what one really wants for a scherzo, only that will be quite out of the question. Edith Staines talked in a loud, determined voice, and emphasized her points with little dashes and nourishes of the dish of poached eggs. At this moment, one of them flew onto the floor and exploded. But it is an ill wind that blows nobody any good, and at any rate, this relieved the footman from his state of indecision. His immediate mission was clearly to remove it. Dodo threw herself back in her chair with a peal of laughter. "'Go on, go on!' she cried. "'You're too splendid. Tell us what you write the presto on.' "'I can't waste another moment,' said Edith. "'I'm in the middle of the most entrancing motive, which is working out beautifully. Do you mind my smoking in the drawing-room? I'm awfully sorry, but it makes all the difference to my work. Burn a little incense there afterwards. Do send me a bone, Dodo.' Come and hear me play the scherzo later on. It's the best thing I've ever done. Oh, by the way, I telegraphed to Herr Truffen to come tomorrow. He's my conductor, you know. You can put him up in the village or the coal-hole, if you like. He's quite happy if he gets enough beer. He's my German conductor, you know. I made him entirely. I took him to the princess the other day when I was at Eggs, and we all had beer together in the veranda of the Beau site. You'll be amused with him.' "'Oh, rather,' said Dodo. "'That will be all right. He can sleep in the house. Will he come early tomorrow? Let's see. Tomorrow's Sunday. Edith, I've got an idea. We'll have a dear little service in the house. We can't go to church if it snows. And you shall play your mass, and her what's-his-name shall conduct, and Bertie and Grantie and you and I will sing. Won't it be lovely? You and I will settle all that this afternoon. Telegraph to Truffler, or whatever his name is, to come by the eight-twenty. Then he'll be here by twelve, and we'll have the service at a quarter past. Dodo, that will be grand, said Edith. I can't wait now. Good-bye. Hurry up my breakfast. I'm awfully sharp-set. Edith went back to the drawing-room, whistling in a particularly shrill manner. Oh, did you ever, said Dodo, who was laughing feebly in her chair. Edith really is splendid. She's so dreadfully sure of herself, and she tells you so. And she does talk so loud. It goes right through your head like a chirping canary. Chesterford can't bear her. Jack laughed. She was giving him advice about the management of his kennels at dinner last night, he said. I heard her say to him impressively as she left the room, Try brimstone. It took Chesterford at least five minutes to recover. He was dreadfully depressed. He must take Mrs. Vivian in tonight, said Dodo. You'll hear them talking about slums and overcrowding and marriage among minors and the best cure for dipsomaniacs. The other night they were talking about someone called Charlie, affectionately but gravely, and I supposed they meant your brother, Jack. But it was the second laundress's young man. Oh, they shook their heads over him. I don't think common people are at all interesting, said Miss Grantham. They only think about things to eat and heaven and three aces and funerals. She had by this time finished her breakfast, and stood warming her back in a gentlemanly manner by the fire. The door opened, and Lord Chesterford came in. "'Morning, Jack,' he said. "'What a lazy chap you are. It's half-past ten, and you're still breakfasting.' "'Dodo, what a beastly smell of smoke.' "'Oh, it's Edith,' remarked Dodo. "'You mustn't mind her, dear. You know she's doing a symphony, and she has to smoke to keep the inspiration going.' "'Dear old boy, you're so sweet about these things. You've never made a fuss since I knew you first. You look very nice this morning. 
I wish I could dress in a homespun Norfolk jacket in knickerbockers. Granty and I are going to bring you lunch. What should you like? You'd better have some champagne. Don't step in that egg, dear. It will make your nice brown boots all beastly. It's awfully cold. You'd better have two bottles. Tell Rakes to send you two. Chesterford, I wish you'd tell Rakes to cut off the end of his nose. I'm always afraid he'll hit me with it when he hands things. He might have it grafted into his chin, you know. He hasn't got any chin. Jack, have you finished? Yes, you'd better start. We'll meet you at the bothy. I'll go and ask Edith if she can spare Bertie. What does she want Bertie for? said Chesterford. Oh, I expect she'll let him come, remarked Dodo. She's really busy this morning. She's been composing since a quarter past eight. Dodo went across the hall and opened the drawing-room door. Edith was completely absorbed in her work. The grilled bone lay untouched on a small table by the piano. Bertie was sitting before the fire. Bertie, said Dodo, are you coming shooting? This woke Edith up. Oh, it's splendid, she said. Dodo, listen to this. She ran her hands over the piano and then broke out into a quick rippling scherzo. The music flew on as if all the winds of heaven were blowing it. Then it slowed down, halted a moment, and repeated itself, till Dodo burst out. "'Oh, Edith, it's lovely. I want to dance.' She wheeled a table out of the way, kicked a chair across the room, and began turning and twisting with breathless rapidity. Her graceful figure looked admirable in the quick movements of her impromptu dance. Bertie thought he had never seen anything so deliciously fresh. Dodo danced with peculiar abandon. Every inch of her moved in perfect time and harmony to the music. She had caught up a thin Indian shawl from one of the sofas and passed it behind her back, round her head, this way and that, bending, till at one moment it swept the ground in front of her, at another flew in beautiful curves high above her head, till at last the music stopped and she threw herself down, exhausted, in an armchair. "'Oh, that was glorious!' she panted. "'Edith, you're a genius. I never felt like that before. I didn't dance at all. It was the music that danced and pulled me along with it.' "'That was the best compliment my music has ever received,' said Edith. "'That scherzo was meant to make you want to dance. Now, Dodo, could I have done that after eating two poached eggs?' "'You may have grilled bones seven times a day,' said Dodo, "'if you'll compose another scherzo.' "'I wanted a name for the symphony,' said Edith, "'and I shall call it the Dodo. "'That's a great honour, Dodo. "'Now, if you only feel miserable during the Andante, "'I shall be satisfied. "'But you came about something else. "'I forget what.' "'Oh, about Bertie. "'Is he coming shooting?' "'I wish it was right for women to shoot,' said Edith. I do shoot when I'm at home, and there's no one there. Anyhow, I couldn't today. I must finish this. Dodo, if you're going to take lunch with them, I'll come with you, if you don't go too early. You know this music makes me perfectly wild, but it can't be done on poached eggs. Now set me down at the Handel Festival, and I'll be content with high tea, cold meat and muffins, you know. Handel always reminds me of high tea, particularly the muffins. He must have written the Messiah between tea and dinner on Sunday evening, after an afternoon service in summer. I often thought of taking the Salvation Army hymn-book and working the tunes up into fugal choruses and publishing them as a lost work of Handel's, Noah, or Zebedee's children, or the Five Foolish Virgins. I don't believe anyone would know the difference. Dodo was turning over the leaves of Edith's score-book. I give it up, she said at last. 
you're such a jumble of opposites. You sit down and write a sanctus, which makes one feel as if one wants to be a Roman Catholic archbishop, and all the time you're smoking cigarettes and eating grilled bone. Oh, everyone's a jumble of opposites, said Edith. When you come to look at them, it's only because my opposites are superficial that you notice them. A sanctus is only a form of expression for thoughts which everyone has, even though their tastes appear to lie in the music hall line, and music is an intelligible way of expressing these thoughts. Most people are born dumb with regard to their emotions, and you therefore conclude that they haven't got any, or that they are expressed by their ordinary actions. No, it's not that, said Dodo. What I mean is that your sanctus emphasizes an emotion I should think you felt very little. I? said Edith, with surprise. My dear Dodo, you surely know me better than that, just because I don't believe that grilled bones are necessarily inconsistent with deep religious feeling, you assume that I haven't got the feeling. Dodo laughed. I suppose one associates the champions of religion with proselytizing, she said. You don't proselytize, you know. No artist does, said Edith. It's their business to produce, to give the world an opportunity of forming conclusions not to preach their own conclusions to the world. Yes, but your music is the expression of your conclusions, isn't it? Yes, but I don't argue about it, and try to convert the world to it. If someone says to me, I don't know what you mean, Handel seems to me infinitely more satisfactory, I can understand him, I simply say, for heaven's sake then, why don't you go to hear Handel? Why leave a creed that satisfies you? Music is a conviction, but Handel's music has nothing to do with my convictions, nor mine with Handel's. Edith sat down sternly and buried herself in her convictions. End of chapter 4